Welcome. Glad to see everyone again. I hope that you're doing well today. I want to welcome you again. Now we're going to actually start doing theology. Last week we talked about it. Now we're going to do it. So isn't that exciting? You all excited? Come on, let me hear a Yahoo, and all that kind of good stuff. So you have a piece of paper on your table, and it's also, well, where is it? It should be up there, and it's coming. And while we're waiting for other people to come, because we are going to stop in about 15 minutes with this, I'd like for you to have a nice roundtable conversation on those three questions. It's good to see everyone here again. Let's go ahead and pull together here. You know, Meg is here and Lisa's here, and these two were the first to ever take theology at this church, and that's pretty encouraging to me. Either it means they didn't get it and they're still not getting it, we got a lot of trouble going here. After so many years, they still just don't get it, so I guess that's one possibility. The other possibility is they just love theology. I'll, I'll give you the latter. It's good to see everyone here, though. Um, hope you're doing well, and I hope the conversation has already begun. Um, did you notice how I introduced this today? I said, we're ready to do theology. Now, here's, you know, someone's going to get the magic, uh, you know, every week we're going to give you a surprise, a prize, right? The, the, the theology prize. Well, here's one of those questions. Why did I say do theology? I could have said what? Learn, study. So tell me something that you learned about this class last week that tells you why I said do. You want us into the drama. Into the drama, good. I like that. Anybody want to piggyback? Yeah. It's participative. It's participative. And what's the word, the key word? that we talked about that speaks to that very issue. It is participative. Good question. You got it. Oh, you got a lot of help. So maybe we need to divide the lottery into three here. That's exactly right. We got a confessional theology going here, and that means that it is something we do because we are in the process collaborating together with Holy Scripture, but not just with Scripture, with the tradition of the church for 2,000 years, we're collaborating towards the formation of, of faith ourselves, of faith that we tend to, to utilize and do and all of that. So I hope that you've been doing some theology already. Let's, let's look at those questions that we're going to pray. Um, what were some of the, the, the things that people said when it went to the question, what makes you believe in God? Just jump them out. You don't have to raise hands around here. I'm a pretty unruly guy. God did. God did. Okay, that is a really good Sunday school answer. I like that. God did. But that's true. He made me believe. That's exactly it. God did. What else? What makes you believe in God? Maybe maybe you go a little further. What is it that God did that makes you believe in God? All right. So you just the marvel of humanity. And, and particularly the speaking of the body. And, uh, and why does that make you believe in God? Alright, what else? Yeah. Not even just the interaction, but the timing of the interaction. Yeah. How you manifest yeah. and bring people together in various facets of life and various journeys of life and 
bring people to know Christ from some events that you just just can't really wrap your brain around, but are there and happening. Good. So, so both of you are speaking to what we will hear about today—the teleological argument for the existence of God. But it's in, but it's but it's good. I mean, you don't need to know the syllogism for it to work, and you're doing that. What else? Anybody else throw out something? What makes you believe in God? Very personal, very real. What makes you believe in God? Interactions. I mean, human relationships are, you know, it just transcends biology. And I get your point exactly. Love, love. It just doesn't strike me as a positivist thing that you can put into a reproducible environment and, and the test tube and all that stuff. So... Something's going on with that. What else? A baby, maybe? If it works. Come on, who else has a, something to share about that? What else is self-introspection? Introspection, okay. So, so like looking at, looking at like my own life over the past how many years and know it, like seeing like so you're getting close to the ontological argument. Very good. What else? Another table. Another another group. Did I hear from this group yet? Yep. We got God here. Anyone want to help with him? What'd you say? <laughs> so Andy mentioned that uh, the Browning quote uh, was that nature, nature itself, becomes compelled. Yeah. It is. There's an awfulness to nature. Well, let's go to the... the I heard a lot of people talking about in blueberries. Now, look, she doesn't know blueberries very well. Because we know we're going to get distracted eating some blueberries. But let's just get to the point of the poem. What, what do you think she's at here? What, what's going on? What's she trying to say? Let's, let's see what we, we came up with. And so what's your point about this, the, the rest sit around it and pluck blackberries? What do you think, what's, what's she saying? What the, Enjoying something of creation, but not recognizing Ah, good, good. So that's good. The, the creation itself, but, but, but there's a kind of irony here, isn't there, in what you just said? I mean, why is it some people... Go and see a blackberry, and, and you know what I see. Lisa, you know what I'm envisioning right here, right? Tell, tell me what I'm envisioning by this. Do you know? <laughs> oh, well, that yeah, that was close. So now tell me what I'm envisioning based on something that happened in our family. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I literally see this picture of our kids. Well, actually, one kid was in Lisa's tummy, and the other kid was in the back of my. By biking up, uh, what was that mountain over Bar Harbor, I think it is? Yeah, one of those big mountains up there. And we got up to the very top. We didn't know we were on a mountain trail. We didn't, I never would have taken my pregnant wife up that mountain trail. But we did. <laughs> she managed. We walked a lot of it. But, but we got up to the top, and there was just this beautiful field on the top of the mountain, overlooking all the other places. It was just unbelievably gorgeous. And there was just an unlimited number of wild blackberries. And we literally sat down in the middle of it. And just ate and ate and ate and ate blackberries, like the bears that we used to read our kids and this thing. So there is something about this quote that is ironic. Help, help Gary out a little bit. He, he pulled it to us. What's the irony here? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like we're not only 
appreciating the majesty, but Diane made a good point that we're like not only not not appreciating it and acknowledging it, but then we're acting selfish by enjoying it. Mm. It's almost like just focusing completely on ourselves good. there's something so much bigger there. Yeah. So like from one end of the extreme to the other. We take for granted this incredible beauty, this incredible utility of, of nature. We're partaking of it. But some just don't see God. Others do. And she seems to be making the point. Uh, but only those who see. But, but it begs the question, why doesn't everyone see? It's plain to see, as, as, as uh, Janine quotes Psalm 19. It's plain to see. Why doesn't everybody see? And there is this sort of distraction. How the very thing which was meant to direct us to God, you would think, if you, if you come from a biblical point of view, is the very thing that's distracting us from God. You think the obsession with leisure, the obsession with, with play or work or utility. I mean, it's both utility and, and aesthetics going on in this, in this matter, right? And yet how distracting we can become. And there seems to be something missing, something adequate but inadequate about the blueberry patch. And then finally, what do you think is the greatest barrier to a person believing in God? Ourselves. Ourselves. Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. So you're going to go back to this original sin idea. Good. We're going to look at that, the noetic effect of sin. How, how is it the sin actually affects our knowledge? We think of it typically as behavioral, but is there something deeper about sin? And how would that affect the way we think about apologetics or evangelism or even the way, what we call epistemology, the way we know God? Um, anybody else? What, what's our, what are barriers? Well, this has been an excellent beginning already. There goes my glasses again. Excellent, excellent beginning. Uh, let's begin in prayer. Would, would one or two of you just pray for us as we begin to do some theology together? Please pray. This, uh, these truths in our heart towards faith, that we would uh, apprehend it and see uh, more clearly both in the scriptures and uh, in revelation through time, uh, and that that wouldn't just result in just more information on heads, mm -hmm. but a true uh, affection and then a faithful uh, apprehension of those truths that really does uh, change us and changes the, the way we live. Amen. So this is a good time if you want to get some of that freshly brewed coffee to get it. So go ahead. No one's going to laugh if you get up and get it, or they wouldn't have anyway. But um, 
And I think we have a little report. Uh, give us a report there. Uh, who, who's with us? Oh, yeah. So we have um, Amy Rathman, my wife, Sarah Rosales, and Janet. Janet, sorry, I forget your last name. All uh, tuned in uh, from our house. And then uh, Daniel Rendelman chimed in on the chat as well that they're watching. So, hello. So, we got some folks coming, and maybe some others will pop in here in a minute, some of the others that were here. And um, anything bookkeeping-wise we need to talk about? Everyone find their handouts this time around? Everybody's clear as to the way we're working here? I noticed a lot of you brought your computers this time around. That's probably smart. You got a good good copy of that. But if not, you'll probably have to have bring one, brought one. Anything uh, that you need to ask about, make sure you sign. Uh, remember, for those especially who think of this as a training for um, teacher, et cetera, do that. Yes, there's somebody in the back. Well, I think it's on that table. Oh, oh the, the, the sign-up. If you all could keep the sign-up going around, uh, go ahead and get that to another table if you wouldn't mind. Uh, anything we need to talk about? How many of you got to read uh, uh, Hodge? Kind of old, 19th century school guy, right? Very modernist in terms of what he's a, a dealing with, so we're going to deal with that as well. But So a couple of you looked at that, I noticed. That's good. Um, I find him to be very, you know, you can kind of skim him. You can slow down. You can read fast. You can go fast. Um, so I do hope that you'll take a look at it. It really might help you think logically about some of this stuff. But, um, but again, very, very scholastic in, in style. You, you'll notice that. And, um, and this typical 19th century kind of stuff. But it's just good, solid, confessional theology. You know, the interesting thing was, uh, uh, from all likelihood, if, you, if you've been to Princeton, you know there's a graveside there, and he's buried there, and there's a tomb. And the tomb is erected um, in honor of A.A. A. Hodge, but, it's, uh, but it's, it was erected by the women, I forgot who they called them, Society of Women or something like that. And um, this book that he read was dedicated to... Uh, uh, this society of women who wanted to do theology. And so he wrote that and, and evidently had some kind of a, of a collaborative with them. And, and um, it just, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. And so uh, it's a very good book, and it's very much meant for lay readership in that day, even though today it's probably a little bit foreign to us. So let's go ahead and start um, with our confession. Uh, you got it there in your in your handout. Would someone read Westminster Confession of Faith one one? Now this will be probably the shortest confessional uh, read that we'll have all year, so enjoy it. But here it is. Who'd like to read that? Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men inexcusable. If they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary Yet they are not sufficient. Now, there's the riddle, solved, uh, or at least acknowledged, the riddle of, of, of Bear Brown's poem, the irony. Notice the Belgic Confession. This is a beautiful statement from uh, our brothers and sisters past. Um, would someone read that? By what means... God is made known unto us. Answer, why don't we say it together? That'd be cool, a confession. Everybody, we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, 
are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely his power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 20, all which things are sufficient to convince men and lead them without excuse. Secondly, he makes himself more clearly fully known to us by his holy and divine word, that is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. And so there are two books. Um, you know, it's interesting. I can't remember if I put it in this one. I think I might later, but uh, if not, you get it at creation when we talk about it. But Hodge makes this wonderful, and I wish we had, before the Scopes trial and before the fundamentalist controversy and all that happened there with science and faith and all of this stuff, before all of that, you know, Warfield was quasi-evolutionist. He was one of the most staunch, hardcore creationists you've ever met. And if you know anything about B.D. Warfield, you know that he was, he was, he was the champion of, of defending, uh, you know, biblical inerrancy and all this kind of stuff. But, but prior to that big moment, um, Christians throughout church history have seen this idea of two books of Revelation as mutually compatible and never even envisioned that you would think otherwise. Two books read by both infallible, the book of nature, or what I call temple creation, because there is a presence of God in creation, as is depicted in, in, um, in Eden, of course, that God is there, as he is in the universe, and I believe creation really is a temple. And by temple, what I mean? What do you think I mean by a temple? If it's a temple, what is it doing? What's its, it's where we worship? Good. And what's happening in that temple? There's a kind of movement. Isn't God towards us and us towards God? There's this movement going on, and, and creation is part of that. Um, and then there's this other book called, here the Belgian refers to it, of course, the book of Revelation of Salvation, the book of redemptive history, revealed ultimately in the, in the book of Jesus Christ. And that uh, is necessary unto salvation. So now we're beginning to see that there are these two books, mutually compatible, uh, they are both infallible, saying the same thing, but we've got a problem. They're both read by fallible people, by fallible guilds. The church reads the book of Revelation. The state, vis-a-vis -vis its various institutions like education, etc., are reading the, the jurisdiction of the book of creation. And both are sinful, <laughs> albeit one being redeemed and one perhaps including redeemed people, but not necessarily. And, um, and that's the way that, that the church has, for thousands of years, envisioned all of this. And they're looking for, for mutual compatibility. There's, there's a sense in which each book needs one another. And either book is insufficient apart from the other. And that already begins what you see in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. There's this idea that nature is a divine mediatorial presence of God. And insofar as it is, which it is, then, of course, we see that in Scripture. Uh, Janine mentioned Psalms 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
So this is a universal language that's coming at us. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And so what are we learning here about the confession? What is it saying? What, are we, what have we learned about this temple creation so far? Just give some bullet points. What are you learning? What did you learn from Psalm 19 and from our confession? Okay, in, in what sense, though? There, there's a sense in which, really? Well, in terms of our salvation. Okay, so it's, what it can do relative to our salvation is limited. But there's another, would anybody say it's unlimited? Yeah, I was going to say it's universal. It's universal. It's universal it is universal. It's unlimited. Uh-oh, we're coming into a problem here. So what is the fundamental barrier? What is the problem? Why don't people believe God? Hold on to that question. You know, a lot of people, uh, when we think of the Enlightenment, you know, we think of people like Descartes and Locke and Kant, Manuel Kant, I think I'm going to put him as well in here, and some others. And what's interesting is most of these people were grappling with, with the Enlightenment in a manner that, that assumed a presupposition. A presupposition that began to redefine fact as that which could be empirically verified or positivism. Now, there's a whole huge movement philosophically that moves into that area. And it's not something that just came up like that. But, but think about how that's shaped our worldview and how it's shaped our life. That, that what do we call fact? I mean... If you were to say, my God is a fact, what would happen today, you think, in, in our discourse with a friend? Proven. Huh? Say proven. proven. And what would you say? Well, you would do something like what Descartes going to do. He, he's going to assume the premise. He's going to get on the playing field of the empiricist, positivist way of thinking without challenging the worldview and he's going to try to do it. And how did they do it? And they're all doing it. Every one of these people would describe themselves as Christians. And so how would they do it? Well, someone read Descartes. This is going to be a fun little philosophical history for you. Someone read that little quote there. The only alternative is that it is innate in me, just as the idea of myself is innate in me. And one certainly ought not to find it strange that God, in creating me, places that you within me to be like mark of the workman imprinted on his work, and it is likewise not essential that the mark shall be something different from the work itself. This is a fascinating and incredibly good argument. I mean, where did we get the idea in the first place? Descartes says. I mean, do you have an idea of anything that doesn't begin with something observable, something that you can at least say, I've experienced it, or seen it, or touched it, or done it, or something. And you may say, as Aristotle, if everybody should have a little Aristotelian philosophy. That was the first philosophy course I took. And, oh, my gosh. Ad nauseum kinds of questions like this. And, um, and you know, but think about that question as he did. You know, he would say something like, um, one of the things that Aristotle would say is he'd say, okay, hold it. So you say the unicorn. Is that, is that an innate idea? Is, an, is a unicorn an innate idea? I mean, there is no unicorn. Have you experienced a unicorn? 
have a spiritual unicorn. Is there a unicorn? Is it a fact? No. But you have the idea of the unicorn in your head. So doesn't that disprove Descartes? Come on. Do some theology with me here. This is going to get fun. Does it? All right, so, but how come God isn't the invention of God, man's created mind? In parts are based in what we can perceive in this world. A Good. And a horn. There you go. God is something that's inconceivable exactly. to the realities of what we live. So we've got a finite creature that's constructed out of us creatively putting together two other finite creatures, a horse and a cow or whatever it is. And, okay, so we can imagine a, a, a unicorn and give it a name. What is it? Worse than a... It's the, uh, the, the uh, seal. Narwhal? Narwhal. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. There we go. Thank you. I know philosophy. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. Do you see what's going on? So, think about the profundity of this. Where did this idea come from? It's infinite. The idea is, as Aristotle described it, an unmoved mover. Where, what, what, what gives? I mean, you know, where do you see unmoved mover? You know, a mover that's not himself being moved. Or if it's in himself, a spirit that's himself not, itself not being moved. You see, it's an amazing syllogism. And, and here he goes. I have an idea of God in my head. The idea of God is infinite and perfect. An infinite and perfect idea can only come from an infinite and perfect being. God must exist in order to be the origin of the idea of God. Now, I'm guaranteeing you, in such a tight and syllogistic reasoning... I can take this onto the streets of New Haven, and I can guarantee you, pretty much, that it ain't going to make one convert. <laughs> I mean, it's just not going to do it. Why? Don't answer that. But why? Why? Locke. Someone read Locke. I love Locke. Stop. All right, you see what's going on? We're already fighting among ourselves, Christians, about how to prove the existence of God. And this is exactly what was going on between Locke and Descartes. Keep going, I'm sorry. I won't do that much. So it stands no original characters on our minds wherein we may read his being. Yet, having furnished us with those faculties our minds are endowed with, he <coughs> hath not left himself without witness, since we have sense, perception, and reason, and cannot want a clear proof of him as long as we carry ourselves about us. Nor can we justly complain of our ignorance in this great point, since he has so plentifully provided us with the means to discover and know him. All right, here's the argument of design, or the teleological argument. All design implies a designer, great design implies a great designer, there is a great design in the world, therefore there must be a great designer of the world, God. And again, is it going to save anybody? In other words, that's the essence of what we have. We have... Psalms 19, acknowledging there really is no, there is no geography, there is no place, there is no human being, there is no language too thick where God has not spoken to us of his existence. It's clear. It's so clear. I love this quote by John Calvin, and here's where Calvin goes to the, to the Enlightenment. He goes, look, come on, people, get off of all this nonsense. We ought not to rack our brains about God. You know, quit thinking so hard. I mean, can you believe? By the way, if you have not read Calvin, and you're judging Calvin by Calvinism, you do not know Calvin. 
Calvin is one of the most pietistic, unbelievably amazing thinkers, but so amazing that there's such a childlike almost piety to him when he writes. And here he is, right here in front of me. It's a beautiful example of Calvin. Look, don't think so hard. No long or toilsome proof is needed to elicit evidence that serve to illuminate and affirm the divine majesty. We are called to a knowledge of God, not that knowledge which content with empty speculation merely fits, flits in the brain. Oh, I love this guy. But that which will be sound and fruitful if we duly perceive it and if it takes root in the heart. Ah, so Calvin. This really begins Calvinism if you understand where this is going to take him. Calvinism saying, look, all this proof stuff, all this good... He's, in essence, saying we're starting to play on the wrong... We're actually getting on the very playing field, assuming a presupposition that in its very heart, the presupposition is the problem. Can anybody guess, before we turn to the next page, what is the presupposition of rationalism or of this way of thinking about the knowledge of God? Can anybody tell me what it is? Boy, this would be a genuine... Some of you read ahead, haven't you? This might be a genuine uh, lottery ticket here. Anybody guess? Well, that we have the capability of understanding completely and defining who this God is. Okay, good. Yes, you're you're going there. That's right. Who who's judge here? What did the Enlightenment do? It turned cosmology on its head. It made man the arbiter of truth. We become the arbiter. We become the controller. It's we who must, therefore, be the God of... I mean, isn't that... I mean, does anybody remember a story in the Bible that this is reminiscent of? Job. Okay, there was a temptation for Job. Go back before that. Where did the problem all begin? It all began with... The woman. (laughs) <laughs> wow how long have you been married no. show me answer that so far 57 years but don't ask me next oh time. my god only only you brother y'all gotta know him he's really joking aren't you okay okay um so he's getting us to the story what's what was the temptation you can be his god you 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 got things all wrong adam you are God. You can be the arbiter of good and evil. And that's exactly what Christians do, 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 do all the time. We get right into that little presupposition, and we actually think that by propping up the pride that allows humanity to become the arbiter of God, that we're going to bring them to God. Now, I'm God. Now, am I going to let myself be known that way? Am I going to reduce myself in order to fit into this empty speculation exercise? Think about what we know of God. To know God is to what? To worship him. There is no way to know God and not to worship him. Whatever God you get to by virtue of this rationalistic way of approaching it is not true God. It's an idol. So, for instance, I love Aristotle and his unmoved mover argument. I love Descartes. I love Locke. And I even think maybe Locke was a Christian and maybe Descartes was a Christian. I don't know. That's only God can know. 
And Kant, believe it or not, I mean, most see Kant is the evil of all evils who put this, this impenetrable glass ceiling into cosmology or into epistemology. I'll, I'll read from him in a minute. And yet these are people trying to save faith. They were trying, in fact, lot, I mean, Kant, you know, says this. I, this is a guy I really studied a lot. And he says this. I was, what's his famous quote? Maybe somebody, it's, I made, I, I, I did something with reason in order to make way for faith. He was trying to address the boundaries and the barriers of his, of his enlightenment world just to make room for faith. And so what did he do? He said, look, there's some things we just can't know by reason. There's some things we can't know like this. And therefore, believe. And he's kind of closely, he's half right, as we'll see. But there's some things that, that the, the apparatus called reason, or the apparatus called empiricism, the two sacred pillars of modernity, there's some things that those two apparatus just can't discern. And that's a God that you would worship, and I would say love. And so there's something really cool about his quote there. We've already read that. So why doesn't everyone believe? Now we come to the scripture in Romans 1.18. Would someone read that? This is amazing. And then the rest of the thing says, and so therefore God did, delivered them over three times. God delivered them over, delivered them over, delivered them over. And if you know that phrase, it's going to continue through chapter one of, Reve of Romans. You're going to know that's the phrase used throughout and consistently throughout the scripture of God cursing humanity or excommunicating humanity. They, he delivered them over to the desires of their heart. That's a very famous, frequently stated view. It tells you something about hell, by the way. What is hell? It's just God delivering us over the, to, to the what we want. And what these people, it's a, it's a want problem. It's a will problem. It's an affection problem. It's something that, it's not a mental problem. It's not an intellectual problem. Not fundamentally. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we, it's not mysticism either. God certainly doesn't circumvent the brain and his revelation to us. That's not what, what's being said here in Romans. It's not that this, you know, it's not setting up a, a thesis that says, okay, screw creation, it didn't work. That's not a problem. Because it's not because creation isn't clear and resounding enough. What's the problem? You see it right here. A heart problem. Now, what is a heart problem? We're going to have to diagnose that a little bit. But what would you do if you circumvent the heart problem in the way in which we approach the knowledge of God? And again, let me remind is is the unmoved mover God? No. It's an idol. It's a personless God. It's a God that you can't worship and doesn't have a will, and is not Lord. 
any kind of God that doesn't have person is not the true and the living God that gets angry and happy, that loves, that hates, all of those things that come to it. And so this is a really powerful statement. Now this word in the Greek is kata echo. And echo is the word to have. Kata is the word to suppress or to take away. So the key thing I want you to notice about that word there that says who suppress the truth is that they have it. That's the point Paul's making. It's, the problem is not that they did not have it. They had the knowledge of God. Is there anyone out there on an island stuck somewhere that has an excuse? Is anyone going to hell according to this passage because they didn't have a chance? We are, we, you look at, you know, one of the things you're going to love about genuine confessional theology is everything we're going to study, since it all starts and begins, ends with God, is going to be very interconnected, like this amazing web or organic <laughs> web of belief. And everything we talk about is going to have these zingers that are going to go off to other topics. And here we just found one. This idea that the kata echo, that we had the knowledge of God. Everybody you meet has the knowledge of God. They got it. Sufficient enough to where they would worship him. But they rejected There's a will problem. Now we're going to start off, and if you're knowing where this is going, woo, are we going somewhere with this? We're going to have to talk about free will. We're going to have to talk about sovereignty. We're going to have to talk about original sin. We're going to have to talk about effectual calling, and rebirth, and recreation, and new hearts, and all of this stuff. And this is what's setting you up, this lesson right here, for every one of those amazing webs of belief. So this is going to get even far. That's why you can't miss one of these. Yeah. This, though, is more like knowledge of God, not necessarily knowledge of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. So, so the problem is we're starting, we're starting on a platform where everyone knows God, sufficient enough to worship him, but everyone basically is caught under this problem of exercising their freedom in order to reject the lordship of God. Because there's only one way to know God. And this is going to get to what we're going to call in a minute the noetic effect of sin. But there's only one way. You, you know, the thing that you know determines how you know it. Do you, do you understand that? I mean, you know, we have this thing going on, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of, thankfully I was going through grad schools, etc. when the whole computer thing starts. And, um, and so I was forced to, to transition with the digital age with Yale's library, literally. And so, you know, but I know a lot of people my, my age that went to college when I went to college, and they didn't go back to another school, and they started a nice business, and they're doing great, and they're smart as whips, and man, they have a really hard time with computers. Computers are just not friendly to them. And you want to hear that. I mean, I, I think Charlie would appreciate me saying when Charlie came on, you know, he got his first I mean, he's just, you know, he's just banging that computer. He's just mad at it, and he's talking to it, you know, and all this stuff. I said, Charlie, we got a reorientation here. You got a heart problem. What? You got a heart problem. What's wrong with God? You know, no, we didn't have a quite like this, but I'm, I'm, Charlie, if you're listening, please, you know, I've given some license here. Thank you. Um, but basically, you know, it goes like that. And, and then I said, well, no, you got a heart problem. You got a heart problem with this computer, man. You got you to start that the computer's your friend. And if you're going to not start with the computer's your friend, you're, it's hopeless. It's over. You've got to assume that this thing 
really can be your friend. And that's the key to what we're talking about here. It's a hard problem. The thing you know determines how you know it. Remember that. If you want to know computers, you're going to have to find out, you're going to have to know computers the way computers' natures are. What is by nature a computer? How does it work? If you're going to know a woman, man, all right, I don't need to finish that. Dan, start this problem. <laughs> Women, if you can know a man, what are you going to do? I mean, this is basic one-on-one -on -one marriage counseling. Here. You know, there's a different human being going on here. I mean, they're really different. And you got to really figure that out. I know it sounds sexist, but it really isn't. Just wait till you've been married for a long time. You'll figure it out. Maybe. Yeah. It's not, but it's not predictable. I'll put it that way. And it's not, well, I won't do it. I, I just got myself in trouble. Y'all, we used to very good. I do. <laughs> Matthew 13, the scripture. Or first, uh, look at what he says here. Although the Lord represents himself in his everlasting kingdom in the mirror of his words with very great clarity. Okay? Revelation, your revelation. Such is our stupidity. I mean, you thought Calvin was sophisticated, didn't you? Such is our stupidity that we grow increasingly dull towards manifest testimonies and they flow away without profitness. Is that scriptural? Isn't that what Jesus said? And Jesus the one said, I could be raised from the dead a hundred times and you still wouldn't believe. Evidence isn't enough. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. As the prophet Isaiah has said, you shall indeed hear but never understand. You shall indeed see but never perceive. And so John Locke says it this way, they lack proofs not because they are out of their reach, because they will not use them. Who though they have riches and leisure enough and lack neither parts nor other helps are yet never the better for them. Their hot pursuit of pleasure or constant drudgery and business. I mean, doesn't this describe the parable of the thorns and the thistles? We get so carried away with our hedonism or we get so carried away with our utilityism in our businesses. We start plucking blackberries and we never stop and worship God. That's what Locke is saying. We never even see the one who gave it to us. We're so immersed in our small world of work and play. And he goes on. It's really great what he says, but I'll pick it up. And some out of fear that an impartial inquiry would not favor those opinions which best suit their prejudices, lives, and designs, and therefore content themselves without examination to take upon that what they find convenient and in fashion. He that would seriously set upon the search of truth ought in the first place prepare his mind with a love of it. It's got to start with love. This is huge. This, this actually changed my ministry. Some of you have been in my life a long time, know this maybe. But I don't know how many years ago, but it really came upon me that you've got to preach to the affections. You can't just preach to the mind. Now, I'm a big believer in preaching the mind, as you know. You don't get to the heart out without getting through the mind. The mind is a door. But you've got to go through the mind to the heart. And I'm still working on that. But I think that's so important. You see what he's saying? We've got to begin to... We've got to have another way of, of, of doing apologetics so that we are, we're targeting the affections. People need to want it before they're going to even be interested in the arguments. You know, there's this old saying, you know, my aunt told me this when I first went into ministry. They don't, they're not going to care what you say until you show them how much you care. That's an old cliche around ministers. But it's so true. Of course, it's also the burden that crushes you. 
it'll kill you trying to make everybody think that you care. You just have to do the best you can. But the point is, and so I don't want to put you all in that group either, but the point is it's true. People got to want to hear from God. They got to want God. And there's something very powerful about this. And what would that say about the way we think now in apologetics and how we do it? Can we really know the truth in the living God without a moral reorientation? And that gets us into the whole context of what's called the noetic effect of sin. We're going to talk later on anthropology and original sin, but this is at least a peak. And, uh, but let me stop here and see if you have any thoughts or questions. We're doing good. Making good time here. Come on, we're doing it here. I'm not going to do it for you. you got to talk, got to think. Yeah. To me, the heart's been very important because the heart, the love that comes from the heart, gives me the desire to want to know God and serve Him and to seek after Him more for my life. Yep, that's right. Good. It's, it's not my heart. It's, it's, I, I just seek after His heart. Or try to yeah. So is the problem that God's not loving enough? No, it's us. So let's talk about this heart. What is the heart? Well, heart can be judgment. I'll give you a little hint. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he talked about the heart, he called it religious affections. He he, he spoke of religious affections as the seat of religion. It's where the it's it's the place where it all begins. The germ, the religious affections, and he defined religious affections by the combination of both heat and light. Talk to me about heat and light. Here's a good metaphor for you. I'm sorry? Heat and light. You got what you mean? Yeah. All right. How how do you experience, differentiate them? Because he saw those as two different things. How would you differentiate heat and light, even if they are both energy? Light is the beginning. Okay. Good theory. Okay, good. Yes, I think that's right. There's a, in the sense that Edwards, light is sort of the, 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 the intellectual, the illuminating, the, you know, sort of the intellectual aspect of it makes sense. The light bulb, aha, it makes sense, light. What's heat, though? You said passion. That's good. Talk to me about that. What's, what do you mean by passion? The love of truth. I mean, let's, let's get real real visual here. I mean, I think of a relation. Remember, we're talking about a relationship with God here. I think about my relationship with a wife or whatever, and, and heat is going to be body. It's going to be a body presence kind of thing. It's, it's feel. It's touch. It's hug. It's kiss. It's all of that. You know, it's, it's, the, it's people in presence. It's a presence issue. There's a presence issue to heat. Whereas light, there is a kind of... Uh, contractual, covenantal, you know, here's what is, here's the definitions, here's the terms, you know, this is, this is the rules, this is not the rules, you know, whatever it is. I mean, so I can read a book about a person, and you're enlightened. Oh, that's blank. You know, I just read a book about blank. But that's very different from the heat of blank, getting, experiencing the heat of blank, the presence of blank. And that's exactly where we're going here in redemptive history. There's never been a time, and we, we, you maybe have heard me say this before, but there's never been a time in all of redemptive history, never, 
Not one time in all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, where there was salvation without a covenant, without light, without revealed words, words that revealed who God is, what he wants, what he doesn't want, etc., etc., how to be saved, words, light. And often, word and light, as you know, are synonymous in Hebrew. But then there's never been a time in all of redemptive errors, never once was there salvation without God in the midst of them. Presence. Is it, I think of the warmth and embracing. Okay, good. Good, yeah. So those are some metaphors. And so there is something that's moving me. I'm feeling it, man, you know. And there's something that's moving me. And I'm meaning by that, it's convincing me. And they come together. And of course, Jesus Christ is, is the personal the ultimate of the presence of God. But of course, in his absence, whether in his ascension or pre-incarnation, how would we have presence? How do we have presence when Jesus isn't incarnated? Both before and after his incarnation. Through faith. Well, that's how we receive it. That's what starts it, but that's not the same as presence. How do we have it? Anybody? Body. The what do you mean? The body of believers. The body of Christ. The body of believers. We call that the temple. The temple. There was never a time when there was not a temple, and there was salvation always. I mean, even when we're out in the middle of the wilderness, there was a temple. We made sure of it. There was that great thing. Now that's getting off on another thing, but that's exactly what's going to happen here, and where this is all going to go. Any other thoughts? Well, noetic effect of sin. The heat and the light. Both have to be present, mm -hmm. and you can have the heat and not know the truth from the word. The irony so is that Jesus. The, is think about how Jesus is described. That's right. The irony is that Jesus is described as what in the in the you know the word became flesh, present, and temple among us, dwelt among us. Isn't that interesting? So he became the ultimate light and the ultimate heat. If you want to use again this metaphor, just a metaphor. So yeah. Well, in some of the older covenants, you had the words of the covenant, uh -huh. and then you had God walking. That's right. The, the, the That's exactly right. And so this is really powerful, and we're getting into a much deeper understanding of what we call epistemology, the, the way we know. That's a big word for how do we know what we know. The way we know God. It's a huge issue. But you can't know a thing. Remember what I said? You can't know a thing without the thing itself determining how you know it. It's, it's the, whatever the thing is, is going to tell you what, what it is and how it is you would know it. If you're dealing with God here, there's only one way to know him, and that's to worship him. That's to obey him. That's to, that is to fall on our face before him. You don't know God if you're not falling on your face. You didn't meet God if you're not falling on your face in Scripture. And see, that's the problem. It's a lordship issue. It's a worship issue. That's what this is all about, a worship issue. And what and where and how and who we want to worship. So that gets us in, did you have something back? No, I was just saying, it seems like up to this point, um, we're at a point where we're trying to figure out what we want to Creation. I mean, God gives what he needs to each person 
enough knowledge and enough conviction for them to have faith, but something else has to happen. Yes, Besides, yes, we're in there. Something else That's is right. going to have to happen. Like, And that was kind of freeing for me to know because yeah. Yeah. I will never be able to stop my enemy to mm. convince someone to become a Christian. But here's the key. The means through which God comes to us is by word, light, and heat, presence. Now, that tells you right there what the church needs to be about. Both. Now, under the modernist church, it was all about word and light and declaration and proclamation. Under the pre-enlightenment church, there was much more about temple and worship and liturgy and community and presence. And stations where you move and experience God through them. They're all, and this is really important because there's there's this both end thing going on here that we're going to discover. But that's exactly right. But but those things, Megan, Meg, those things, word and light, will they save you necessarily? What we're getting at is no. There's a deeper problem than the than the means, the instrumental stuff. The instruments are there. God is speaking loudly through creation. And God is revealing loudly, we'll see later on, through the temple. But it's a heart problem. And the heart's got to get reborn. That's a problem. And, and so we're going to get that. But look at, let's go into this. But now how do we approach that approach? So let's look at what's called the noetic effect of sin. Again, there's different types of knowledge. What we seek to know determines how we know it. Now, that's about the tenth time I've said it. As Christians, we cannot begin speculating about knowledge by itself. We cannot ask how we know without at the same time asking what we know. To say that we do not need to ask about the nature of reality when we ask about this nature of knowledge is not to be neutral, but is in effect to exclude the Christian answer to the question of knowledge. All of that. In other words, knowledge of God is inherently moral. There's a moral issue here, a lordship issue here, because of who God is and our relation to him as a creator. And so he goes on to say, it is the sense of deity, even this knowledge of God, which Paul tells us in Romans, every man has but which, as Paul also tells us, every sinner seeks to express that the Christian apologetic must appeal. So I, I jump down here on these two playing fields, and it's really simple. There's one playing field that is faith-seeking reason. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Doubting Thomas is, is good. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I believe, now verify, you know, what was that thing? Uh, trust, but verify, or whatever it is. Reason-seeking faith, manage the final appeal. And so I have a fundamental issue with so many approaches that we have Done, which in effect elevate human reason and lordship in the, in the question of epistemology, based on what I'm hearing here. We've got to be careful about that. Um, and so there's some great quotes here. I won't read them. Um, notice what Paul does in Acts 17 to give you an illustration of this. Uh, anybody know that passage? Can I tell you what happened? That's where we went in the Areopagus. Did, did you hear how he began? He, he, he starts off, behold, I notice you're a very religious people. He just, went, he just went right around the idea that, no, you are all religious. You're all worshiping something. And I really deeply believe that. There is no such thing as a true atheist. I mean, you may call it atheism, but really your God is whatever fills that vacuum 
of purposefulness and lordship over and what lords over your life in terms of what governs your principles, etc. There's there's a God in everybody's life. The Bible, there, you know, it's really it hit me a long time ago, but somebody I can't remember who it was in some course I was in. It says, you know, did you notice that God just always starts every conversation with the assumption, the presupposition that God is. There's never a time in the Bible where there's even the hypothesis or the the concept of God isn't. It just assumes that God is. And everything comes from that. And I think there's something really powerful about that. This little counterintuitive where we, we, we approach this topic with, now I'm going to show you how to do that gently. I don't mean that you say, oh, you're just not, you're, you're no atheist, you're really, just, you're, you know. that's not what I'm going to tell you to do. That's not what we're going to talk about. What we're going to do is we're going to have to at least for a moment suspend judgment and say, look, let's just for a moment agree to disagree. Let's, let's agree for a moment that, as you're going to see later on, to get on this playing field. I'm going to get them off the playing field, though, of being the arbiter of truth, because I know that's only going to prop up the very barrier of knowing God. I'm going to try to posit a presupposition, if you will, that says, let's just assume for a moment there is a God. Well, then how would you know that God? And there's the conversation. Or I'm not even going to have the conversation. I'm going to get this person around some heat. If the, if, the, if the issue is intellectual, the counterintuitive is not go for the intellectual. See, intellectual is the God if it's an intellectual. So I want to say, look, let's just don't talk about it for a while. Hey, by the way, I've had this great beer party over here with my buddies, knowing that 90% of your buddies are Christians. You want to come? No, see what you just did? You said, I'm not going to get on that playing field. I'm not going to, get play, I'm not going to play that, that speculative science lordship issue. I'm just going to get you around some people, and you're going to start feeling the heat of God. The heat of God, which might move you to say, God, here's something about these people that I just really love. I'm kind of wishing it was true, you know? I mean, I'm kind of wishing all this was really true. I'd love to fully participate with them. Worship. Worship has a powerful heat effect. It's so modernist. It's so passe to think that evangelism happens outside of worship. That is so modernist. Oh, i got to convince them to believe in God, and then I'll ask them to worship. Man, you just took out half the power of God to save them. Now, we got to be careful that our worship is the kind of worship that a person can come to, but it's not going to be dumbing it down. It's not going to be taking the reverence of God out of it. That's exactly what's going to be warned about. Is seeing a world that's not about them and not about politics, and not about all this other stuff. It really is asking me to consider that there's someone that exists that I need to fall on my face for, if he exists. That's enticing. So if, if God's working in their heart, and that's the point, we're, we're going to get that in that. So, so think about what he did. And what he does is he immediately turns it to, look, your problem here, it's not that you're not religious. It's not that you don't have faith. It's that you got a lordship problem. <laughs> this is bold. Look what he does. The God who made the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. In other words, he is not something you can craft in your brain. I mean, this is like in your face, and you think, we're so afraid to say this, but you can say it lovingly. You can say it in a really deeply empathetic way. 
nor is he saved by human hands as though he nerved needed anything, since he himself gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries and dwelling places. Man, there's not nothing. I know that's bad language. There's nothing that God isn't decreeing here. I mean, this is high theology. They did, that they should seek God in the hope. Now, who's the beggar? Is God over here begging? Please believe in me. I really need you to believe in me. I don't know if I'm going to believe in myself if you don't believe in me. You know, I think a lot of recent Christians are so anxious about evangelism because they're afraid they're going to lose their faith if their friend doesn't believe it. And that's a bad evangelist because, man, you're going to be manipulative and insecure. You know? And so look what he says. I mean, just right out there, clean, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way. Did you hear that? Feel their way towards him and find him. Has that word ever stuck out at you if you've read that last verse before? Feel their way. I mean, that they're, I, you, you probably could, I think I could put in there, heart their way. Like I heart New Haven, you know? Heart their way to God. For in him, did you hear the presence? In him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And then he goes on and he calls them to repent, basically. Look, God is not like silver and gold. Now, what would be the silver and gold today? Look, let's just be honest. I don't know anybody in New Haven that's out there, you know, constructing silver and gold gods. So tell me what the silver and gold would be now. What are the ways that we try to construct God? And put him into our, you know, kind of our lordship. Prestige, money, good. Modernity, what did modernity do? Yeah, empiricism, positivism, what we call modern science. God is only God if and when you can prove him. But prove him how? Oh, of course, by my method of science, <coughs> modern science. I say modern science. That's that's a that's a differentiation of what Scintia used to be. Scintia used to be theology. Science used to be literally up until the Enlightenment. If you had said the word Scintia in science, you'd be talking theology. Science, the way we know what we know, is by revelation, and therefore creation is a subcategory of science, theology. It's not that it was anti-creation or even science, or scientific method, insofar as scientific method does what it's meant to do. But here, here, here what's going on. So that's good. Reason, rationalism. I mean, let's think of those, I mean, if you think of, of modernity, what, what scholars have studied about what, what makes modernity modernity, you're going to get to the idols. What are they? Positivism, that is empiricism or modern science. Rationalism. All right, there we go. University, if you will, or just knowledge, you know, that's contained to our ability to control it. I'm, I'll tell you a story later, of course, Adam. And then what else? Anybody know for modern enlightenment? Self. Good. Who said that? Individualism. Individualism. You begin with me. Very self. And I don't mean that in terms of selfish. I mean that in terms of philosophical narcissism. An idea that I that nothing is true unless I myself can 
fit it into my brain or experience it. Nothing's true. Philosophical narcissism. Not selfish. This person will be the most unselfish person you've ever met. All right, there's another one. There's two more. The pillars of modernity. Rationalism, positivism, um, uh, individualism. You want to guess? Okay, egalitarianism, or which is a subset of, of individualism, but basically democratization. I mean, how do we know what we know? Now, I think it's a great system of politics, maybe, kind of. But how do we know what we know? Well, when, when the majority affirm it. The majority is always right. So populism is another word for it. All right? Anything else? Oh, I forgot to. You're pop. <laughs> All right. Well, I was doing it off the cuff anyway. But you see, we're, we're, we got to learn to think. And, 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 of course, how would you make this? How would you have this conversation with someone you love or someone you're working with? How would you have Think about this conversation. I think this is the conversation. If you're going to talk and you don't want to get on the playing field of, of supporting the very problem, which is the, the lordship issue and the arbiter issue of truth issue, then how would you have this conversation? Because this is, you can have the same conversation, different words, different ways, but you can have the same conversation with yourself and with others. Because what you're doing is you're getting off the playing field of reason-seeking faith, and you're going to get a person to the place where you say, look, let's just for a moment, somehow, we're going to get to this place. Whereas Francis Schaeffer says, you've taken the roof off of their, of their supposition. That means rain's getting in now. It's not very appealing anymore. And you're, and you're now going to begin to think, okay, so let's just for a moment, why don't you just check it out for a while? Then? Why don't you just come on over to my house and watch some TV? Why don't you just, you see, you're going to go to these ways in which you're going to begin to uh, uh, target their affection. And sure, take them, take them to the wilderness. Take them to the, to the beach. Enjoy creation. When you're with creation and you're picking the blackberries, enjoy the blackberries, but, but have that conversation. Man. What, what does this stuff make you feel, Billy Bob? You know, what, what's happening here, man? I don't know. Something's happening to me right now. What's happening to you? Yeah, I'm feeling it. You know, have some conversation like that. There's ways to go about it. Um, thoughts or questions at this point? Something that I've kind of experienced is like that analogy of the computer that you were saying earlier. It's like, we take a place of the computer, we need to have the best interests of what we're trying to help. Like, I think that when the topic of faith comes up in conversation, people are automatically on the defensive. Yeah. And I think that yeah. it's just super important to um, just, like, somehow express to them that you have their best interests. Yeah. Like, Good. they are a project. And, regardless of whether they believe it or not, let's go, let's go have a Let's go have a coffee together. It, it, the relationship isn't contingent upon you right. and I agreeing on this. That's huge. Your friendship is not in jeopardy here. Yeah. And, um, and, and there, yeah, I think that's good. Let's keep going with that for a minute. I want to I make sure we have at least 10 minutes to talk about one other thing. But that's good. I mean, I can envision a conversation that really does make it safe to have a genuine conversation and, and to begin to explore these sort of themes. That maybe the problem really isn't reason. You know, I can't prove, you can't prove God. I can't prove God. I mean, one of the things I do is dismantle the whole thing and just say, look, okay, I can't prove God. There's some amazing 
credible reasons to believe God, I would say. There's one on the internet right now about, oh, it's really cool. I showed it to someone recently. I won't say who, but, but, um, but it was amazing about just the, it, it literally says, I don't know if y'all seen, y'all seen, finally scientists prove God, or it was, I think, an astrologist or something like that proves God. Has anybody seen that? It's really pretty cool, actually. And I look at it and go, how can anybody argue against that? That's really amazing. But of course, I, it really won't. It won't to their hard ways. So let's just go ahead and give them that. I can't prove God. And can you give me that you can't disprove God? You can't disprove God. What we can talk about is our apparatus. How do we know God if God's God? Would we really know him? A God who's infinite and eternal and immutable and unbeaten and all Would we really know him by fitting him into our brain? I mean, would there ever be a knowledge of God that didn't lead us to utter exasperation? If there's God. I mean, would you expect that if there's a God? That you could ever contain the knowledge of God? What makes God God is he's infinite. And there's a mystery. Is there any doctrine, anything that we could talk about that if they were talking about God would not eventually lead to a mystery? All right, so let's get that one out of the way. All right? Mystery isn't a proof against God. My rationalism and my proofs and everything else isn't going to prove God. So now where are we, Billy Bob? What are we going to talk about now? You know, and there you go. Well, let's go have a beer together. And let's have conversation about what if there were a God? What would life be like? What would it be like? What is, if, if the Bible were true, let's make sure you at least understand what it says and doesn't say, because there's a lot of bad press going on out there about it. Give it a second look. Give it a second look. And there you are. You're having, if you get into that kind of conversation. It may take days, years, whatever to have that conversation. I want to go ahead and hit one more thing. We've talked a lot about how to talk and reason and think and and all of this stuff. But remember, I said there's two playing fields. I mean, there's two books. We have not talked about, and we alluded to it with the, the image of of, of, of uh, heat. But there's a second point of contact. So if the first con point of contact is creation, and but yet we've been thinking, how do we think about creation with, with people? The other point is a, uh, what we call a point of contact is the temple, the, the missional church, the community, the body of Christ. Um, again, involving a suspension, I'll, I'll go through, I won't read this. I hope you read this great quote from John Murray. It's, it, it's sort of, we, we do have to re-explain Christianity because there's been a lot of bad press, so that's his point there, basically. But I love Vanden uh, Uken's uh, point. This actually is a book I give often still. It's about a, a graduate student who was here at, at Yale a long, long time ago who, who was an English major and began to converse with C.S. Lewis, his wife, who's a Christian, he's not, and praying for him. And so the warmth was there. He began to be attracted. He saw the strength and the power of God in her life as she suffered death. And, and he wanted to believe, but he couldn't. So the heat was working, and he was trying to get over the hurdle intellectually. And here is, is uh, what he said when he converted after correspondence with C.S. Lewis. And it's all in this book. Christianity, in a word, the divinity seems probable to me, but there was a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to state my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. Now, that's a modernist impulse. That's, that's not going to happen. I, I mean, certainty can't happen according to the positive. Certainty of God can't happen. It's just not going to happen. I still don't have it. 
Not, not if you mean by that that I can somehow find this empiricist way of, of proving it. So listen to what he says. And I wish you knew the letters in there in the book between him and C.S. Lewis that got him there. One day later, there came the second intellectual breakthrough. It was the rather chilling realization that I could not go back. What had happened, do you think? He wanted it. He just wanted it. The position was not as I had been comfortably thinking all these months. And this is the naivete. Oh, by the way, the, the fifth one was humanism. Humanism. And there's this kind of naivete sentimentalism that comes with humanism. The position was not as I had been comfortably thinking all those months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. See, that's he calls the bluff. My God, he writes, there was a gap between me behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God there was no certainty that he was not. I could not reject Jesus. Why? Why do you think, guys? The love of his wife. The example of her dying in Christ with joy. That's the story that's behind all of this. I could not reject Jesus, so there was only one thing for me to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. I chose to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in Christ my Lord and my God. What, what happened here? There's always a leap. But what he does is he exposes that the leap is a will leap. It's not an intellectual leap. I mean, it's always an intellectual leap too. But what there's never a one leap. That's the myth. There's always a leap. I'm either leaping over here or I'm leaping over there, but I'm not just sitting in the middle of, of, of an abyss of no leap. Because whatever you do, you've leaped. However you act, whoever lords over my life, I've leaped by doing it. So the unbeliever has leaped. Over the, the gap of uncertainty as to whether there's a God or not into life as if there is no God. You see, the leap has happened. By the very fact that you say, I'm open-minded. Open-mindedness is a leap. And so, in that sense. And so you see this idea of temple church, or temple presence. God has an address. Did you see that, brother? I was putting it there for you. <laughs> I'm really getting on with this. That's his, that's his, man. He quotes it. God has an address. Where the knowledge of God is full, wherein Christ is found, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And uh, here's this, this uh, quote again by David Wells. I won't quote it now. I go in here and just say stuff that you've heard before here. But where I want to go with this is uh, down there that the, uh, this idea that we need to start thinking of conversion much more, well, ecclesially, if you will. Or the, the conversion is not just changing someone's mind, it's changing their will vis-a-vis their being incorporated into a community of Christ. There's a communalness to conversion. So listen to the way that this goes. I'm, I'm reading here a quote from a little piece I wrote, but I'm getting to Alistair McGrath. In conversion, for instance, wherein the covenant word, light, aspect of Christian spirituality will emphasize declaration and assent, such as to receive by faith the word of life, 
The temple bodily presence aspect of Christology applied suggests an experiential epistemology, not often recognized. Alexander McGrath, describing Blaise Pascal's conversion vis-a-vis C.S. Lewis, so I think we're quoting now four, three times removed, <laughs> says it this way. For Pascal, there was little point in trying to persuade anyone of the truth of religious belief. The important thing, he argued, was to make people wish that it was true. Having caught sight of the rich and satisfying vision of reality it offered, once such a desire was implanted within them, the human heart, the human mind would eventually catch up with its deeper intuitions. And so it's very interesting if you read about ancient conversions, and I'm quoting here from a guy named George Limbeck in his incredible book, The Nature of Doctrine. Um, I'll just end with this. Uh, Pagan converts to the Christian mainstream did not, for instance, for the most part, first understand the faith and then decide to become Christians. Rather, the process was reversed. They first decided, and then they understood. You see, isn't that what, isn't that what uh, Van Uken did? They first decided, I'm going to leap, I'm going to participate, I'm going to get involved, I like it. And then I'm going to say, I believe, now help me in my unbelief. That's the pattern, people. All through the Bible, that's the pattern. Modernity lied to us, and evangelicals were culprits of this. Rationalism isn't going to save anybody. But it's not irrational either. That's important. So then he goes on. More precisely, they were first attracted by the Christian community in form of life. They submitted themselves to prolonged catechetical instruction, which they practiced new modes of behavior and learned the stories of Israel and their fulfillment in Christ. And only after they had acquired proficiency in the alien Christian language and form of the life were they deemed able intellectually and responsibly to process, profess the faith to be baptized. I want you to turn the final page there. I don't know, uh, if, if you copied it too early, you might not have this. But, I'm, but there's, you know, if you know the story of... Um, uh, the story of Augustine. Anybody read uh, his Confessions? One of the best books you can ever read. read. Um, although, yeah, there's some parts in it that get pretty moralistic at the end because remember, this is a guy that was struggling seriously with probably a sex addiction, among other addictions. So you'll see some things that's pretty harsh against sex and some other things. But remember the context. He was a sex addict. Really was. I mean, I mean everything you read about him says today you call him a sex addict. Think about St. Augustine, converted sex addict. That's pretty cool. Um, but here, listen to what happened. If you have it, I don't know how many of you see this, but let me just end with this story. So, so many, well, I'm just going to read it. Modern evangelicals will often reference the conversion of Augustine, chronicled in his confessions as illustrative of Christian conversion. Interestingly, however, the reference is usually to Augustine's garden experience. I mean, you've heard about his coming to Christ, garden. Raise your hand. Isn't that where he came to Christ? Garden? Yeah. Well, did you read it all? Interestingly, you know, and remember, the experience was the reading of Romans 13, and, and, and it's all told about in Book 8. I say interestingly because this is the context where Augustine was still, we might say, converted to Christianity's a moral system. In other words, he, he, he said, okay, this is my ethics. It was, all, it was an ethical ex- exercise. This ignores the fact that he was per- previously converted to Christianity intellectually as a philosophical system, from dualism of Manichaeism to Christian monotheism is told in Book 7. So there's a, there's a story of conversion going here, and it went from dualism to monotheism, 
It went from paganism in terms of the ethical system that he adhered to. He's a very good intellect, as you know, and to this to this Christian ethics. So Christian ethics. But in his own words, prior to his being baptized, he said, Thus in that depth I recognized the act for your will, and I gave praise to your name, rejoicing in faith. But this is his commentary on, on chapter eight. But this faith could not let me feel safe about my past sins since your baptism had not yet come to remit them. And so the evening before Easter, April 24, 387, Augustine was baptized by Ambrose together with many others and Augustine reflected, we were baptized and all anxiety as to our past life fled away. There's something deeply communal about conversion. It's amazing how modern this we have become. You know, the old sinner's prayer. Now, there's, there's something good about that. I prayed a sinner's prayer with Fred the other day, Fred Cozy. And I believe it was sincere, and, and immediately I began to find ways to connect him communally. But the key thing is, so it's not that the prayer's wrong. It's not that, that, any of that's wrong. It's not that you, you call people to a decision, etc. But it's just to remember that there's a fullness in conversion. There's a fullness to our, our knowledge of God, which is both eat and light. It's two books of Revelation here. And in that, you see that, that we need to start thinking deeply more about what, what would Paul have said? What would Peter have said? What must I do to be saved? Wouldn't they have said, believe in me, repent, that is, turn away from self-lordship, turn to me as your Lord, and be baptized? What? Be baptized? That's just incorporated into the body of Christ. And so that's really, really important. So I'm going to stop there. We've, uh, I think we're three minutes late, so I'll stop. If you want to have asked questions, I'd love to do it. Um, but let me just close this in prayer.